Friends, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Continuing on in our series in the Gospel according to Luke chapter 16, this morning we're going to look at one verse. Verse 18. And our aim today is to reflect biblically on the importance of marriage as an institution ordained by God. Luke chapter 16, verse 18. For the sake of context, we're going to begin reading in verse 14. And I'll explain that hopefully in the course of the sermon. So if you would, please follow along with me as we read now from God's Word, verses 14 to 18 in Luke chapter 16. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask for help today. Anytime we open the Bible, it's a spiritual act by which we are submitting ourselves to You and acknowledging our dependence upon the Holy Spirit to understand what You have revealed in Your Word. And so we pray, Father, for the illumination of the Holy Spirit today. We pray, Father, for humble hearts. We pray for clear minds to think and to follow what You have revealed to us in Your Word. We pray, Father, for discernment. Please keep me from error, God. Please bless Your people with the gift of discernment today. And we would ask, God, that You would please bear fruit in our lives and in the life of Your church through the work of Your Holy Spirit. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor do so in vain. And so we ask and we plead that Your Spirit would bear fruit today in our hearts and in our church. And God, we pray this confident that You hear us because Christ is risen from the dead and seated at Your right hand. And we pray in His name. Amen. Friends, historically, the church has taught that God has ordained three foundational institutions for human life and flourishing. The first institution is the family, that principal set of relationships that gives definition to all human life. The second institution is civil government, the collection of human authority that is exercised for the punishment of evil the protection of life, and the promotion of what is good. And the third institution is the church, the body of Christ composed of all true believers down through the ages. The family, civil government, and the church. Those are the foundational institutions for human life and flourishing. Two of those institutions have their origins in the all-important Bible word, covenant. The family and the church are both founded through and upon a covenant. The church, for example, is 
the product of the triune God's covenant of grace. In eternity past, God the Father determined to save a people for Himself. God the Son joined with the Father to accomplish that determination. And God the Spirit applies the Father's redeeming covenant to all whom have been given to the Son. The church is founded upon a covenant. The family, likewise, is founded upon a covenant. The covenant of marriage. Marriage itself is God's creation as it was God who joined Adam and Eve together in the first family. To state the obvious, every person since Adam has parents whose relationship is the source of his or her life. So that family as a God-ordained institution is the bedrock for the continuation of human life. Family is founded upon covenant. Now, if you know the Bible, then you know that a covenant is a solemn agreement. In God's economy, covenants are not to be taken lightly. A covenant is not a glorified contract. Rather, a covenant has a note of solemnity. A recognition that one is acting not just for his own interest, but also for the interest of others, and most importantly, before the face of God. This is why the Bible speaks with such weight on these matters. This is why, for example, Jesus demands that His church be shepherded through His Word in the ministry of qualified pastors and nourished through the regular practice of His ordinances. The covenantal nature of the church means what we do this morning is joyfully solemn. And the same is true for the family, friends. The covenantal nature of marriage helps explain why the Bible speaks so seriously and so clearly on the importance of this institution. And our passage today is one such example of Jesus' teaching. Of all the things that we might say about this text, we ought to begin with this. Verse 18 reminds us that God cares very deeply about marriage and family. God cares very deeply about marriage and family, for it belongs to Him. But before we go too far in studying this text, we ought to pause here and establish a few points at the outset that should guide our discussion. I can't give you a full theology of marriage and family this morning, though that would be a very fun exercise together, maybe a future sermon series. But there are a few points that we must absolutely keep in mind before we go any further with verse 18. So, a few points to guide our discussion. First of all, as biblical Christians, we will be countercultural in our views on marriage and family. Mark it down. We will be countercultural. My choice of verb there is intentional. Not maybe, not might be, will be. Marriage is a covenant relationship between a man, and a, a man and a woman. And that statement alone is increasingly unique in our day. What's more, marriage is the only context for God-honoring sexual expression between a husband and a wife. Again, we're countercultural to an incredible degree. What's more, marriage is governed by God's Word, not by the dictates of the civil government. Again, Countercultural. And brothers and sisters, 
one of the things that I'm going to try to do today is make the case to you that this countercultural nature of marriage and family for the church is a good and glorious thing. We will be countercultural. The second point we ought to be clear on is that marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is not ultimate. Yes, Jesus speaks with solemnity in verse 18, but marriage itself is not ultimate. To state it plainly, there are many in Christ's church who will not enter marriage, but whose lives will make significant impact for the kingdom of God. We ought to serve and honor those brothers and sisters. What's more, marriage itself will one day cease. As hard as it is for me to imagine, there will come a day when my precious bride will see Christ as He is. And in seeing Christ, she will not see me as we are now. On that glorious day, my bond with her will be finished and my joy will be complete in Christ just as hers will be complete in Christ. Marriage itself will cease. So, marriage, though solemn, in God's eyes, is not ultimate. Third, we ought to be clear that marriage takes place under the shadow of the fall. Marriage takes place under the shadow of the fall. Marriage, for all of its glory, is affected by sin deeply. Many of, this, many of us know this from our own experience. Whether it be broken marriages that we grew up in, or broken marriages that we have experienced ourselves. Many more of us can relate to just the everyday heartache that comes when one sinner is married to another sinner. In fact, I don't want to assume anything this morning with you, so I'm just going to state this plainly up front. And I want you to hear me. If your marriage is struggling, or if it is a source of difficulty, then please come and talk to someone. If you are hurting, or if you are potentially facing harm, please come and talk to someone so that we can help you. Listen to me. If you don't hear much today, I want you to hear this. Having a godly marriage does not mean ignoring problems or putting on a brave face or excusing sin. So if you're hurting or if you're struggling or if you're afraid, please don't stay in the dark. Please come and talk to someone. As pastors and members of this church, we are committed to caring for you as best as we can. You should hear that promise of care every time I refer to you as brothers and sisters. I don't share blood with any of you other than my two boys. But I call you brothers and sisters. Why? Because I'm committed to your good just like I pray you're committed to mine. So we know that marriage takes place under the shadow of the fall. We hear that very clearly in this text as Jesus talks about divorce. And for that reason, brothers and sisters... The last thing that we ought to be clear on from the start is our need for the Gospel. Our need for the Gospel. Again, I want you to hear me. I'm putting all the stuff up front so that I don't lose any of you for the rest of the sermon. I want you to hear me. No one is saved by being married. 
You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No one is saved by having a good marriage. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And perhaps most importantly today, no one is condemned by failing in marriage. It's the Gospel that determines your standing before a holy God, not your track record in marriage. So, whether you are single or married, whether you have been divorced or not, whether your marriage is flourishing or struggling, I want you to hear this sermon not through the filter of your own performance, but through the glorious reality of the Gospel. Everyone in here needs the Gospel. Now, let's turn our attention to studying this text. Verse 18. As you heard in our reading, Jesus speaks quite plainly in this passage on divorce and remarriage. My plan is to try to understand Jesus' teaching by answering two questions for you. First will be the question of context. Why is this verse here in the middle of Luke chapter 16? The question of context. Second will be the question of content. Content. What does Jesus mean with His prohibition of divorce? So, two questions, context and content, that I pray will help us understand and apply and submit to the Lordship of Jesus. First of all, let's deal with the question of context. Why is this verse here in the middle of chapter 16? Why is this verse here? When you first read this text, verse 18 might seem out of place to you. Luke chapter 16 begins with a parable on kingdom stewardship, and it ends with a parable warning us to be vigilant that money not dull our ears to the Word of God. So it's a parable on possessions at the beginning, a parable on possessions at the end, and in the middle, verse 18, Jesus appears to throw in this statement on divorce. So why is this verse here? Well, friends, remember what we studied last week in verses 14 to 17. That's why we read it again. Remember how Jesus asserted His authority in God's kingdom. And remember how Jesus focused not on outward performance, but on the reality of the heart. Those two principles, the authority of Jesus and the centrality of the heart, explain why verse 18 comes at this point. Those two principles, the authority of Jesus and the centrality of the heart. In God's kingdom, Jesus is the one who speaks with divine authority. And His authority reaches all the way to the most intimate of human relationships, the relationship of marriage. To follow Jesus then means that even your marriage must be oriented towards Jesus' Word. For Jesus is the authority in God's kingdom. I hope you see that connection. The prohibition on divorce is the most pressing example of Jesus' claim to rule over your life. His Word is authoritative where even the most intimate relationship you have, marriage. At the same time, verse 18 is also an illustration of Jesus' focus on the heart. What is He concerned with? Not mere outward performance, He's concerned with your heart. In Jesus' day, verse 18 was a powerful 
illustration of how Jesus' standards actually exceeded those of the Pharisees. Let me explain what I mean. In in the Judaism of Jesus' day, of which the Pharisees were a part, there was a strand of teaching that allowed a man to divorce his wife for just about any perceived offense. In fact, one very famous example allowed that a man could divorce his wife if she overcooked dinner. That's not actually um, a recipe for marital harmony, just so you know. And neither is it in step with the Spirit of God's Word. So, a strand of Judaism that allowed a man to divorce his wife for just about any reason. But it actually gets worse. Here's where it gets worse. To accomplish such a divorce, all that a man had to do was write his wife a certificate and present it to her. And then he's done. So notice how that ignores the reality of the heart. To be technically in step with the law, all you had to do was this mere outward action. Write out a certificate. And all the while, you could easily ignore the reality of your heart. So, by including this very strong prohibition in verse 18, Jesus is showing us again how mere outward performance just will not do. In God's economy, you can't simply write things off and then use a legal technicality as cover. Jesus is not going to let you get away with that. Instead, Jesus is pressing His disciples to remember that God knows your hearts. I don't care how many certificates you write. I don't care how many legal technicalities you fulfill. God knows your hearts, Jesus is saying. And since, God is, and since God's intention from the beginning was for marriage to be lifelong, no amount of legal wrangling, no, about, no amount of rabbinic technicalities can get you off the hook, Jesus says. If your aim is to please God, then your faithful obedience needs to be offered from the heart. So that's why this verse is here at this point in Luke's Gospel. It does two things. It shows us Jesus' authority. His Word extends to the most intimate of all of your relationships. And it reminds us that God's standard is the heart. To please God, you cannot settle with mere outward performance and clever legal arguments. You've got to deal with the heart. So before we go on, I want to press something home to you. When it comes to marriage, we all know that the most serious biblical command is you shall not commit adultery. Right? It's the most serious biblical command within marriage. You shall not commit adultery. But on that serious violation, I wonder if we are sometimes more like the Pharisees than we care to admit. That is, follow me, that is, we technically do not commit adultery in the physical sense. We avoid that physical act of sin. But, how many of us at times harbor adultery of the heart? Remember, Jesus said simply to look at another person lustfully is to commit adultery in your heart. How many of us tolerate being less than faithful at heart? How many of us, in other words, could say, yeah, I'm not breaking that commandment outwardly. 
but maybe inwardly, I am. So I just want to make you uncomfortable because that's what God's Word is intended to do to us at times, is to get us to be honest. I just want to ask you some questions. Are you heart level faithful to your spouse? Not merely outward faithful. Heart level faithful? Do you strive with all of your might to set before your eyes no vile thing, as David says in Psalm 103? Do you secretly wish that your spouse was different? Do you indulge in thinking what it would be like to be married to someone different? Are you heart level faithful to your spouse? Friends, that's one of the applications from Jesus' teaching in verse 18. It's one thing to say that you technically have remained faithful by not being in an adulterous relationship. That's no small thing, mind you. But we shouldn't stop there. Are you heart level faithful? So let's examine our hearts as Jesus would have us do. And where necessary, let's bring things into the light of the Gospel. Let's look at that second question now. The second question of our study, which is the question of content. What does Jesus mean with His prohibition of divorce? What does He mean? From the start, we ought to assert that this is a prohibition from Jesus. He speaks very forcefully that one is not to illegitimately divorce his or her spouse and marry another person. To do so, Jesus says, would be tantamount to adultery. So it's a very strong prohibition from the Lord. The reason for the prohibition is twofold. One is what we just considered a moment ago, the authority of Jesus. The strong prohibition demonstrates Jesus' authority and His Lordship in the Kingdom of God. The second reason for the prohibition has to do with God's purpose for marriage. In God's design, marriage is a lifelong covenant commitment between a man and a woman. Divorce grieves the heart of God. And divorce goes against God's expressed will for His institution of marriage. And so we ought to affirm what verse 18 means. That God intends for marriage to be lifelong. It's an enduring covenant commitment. As we think about the strong prohibition from Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, are there any other passages in the Bible that also speak to this issue? Remember friends, to be a biblical Christian means that we also interpret the Bible with the Bible. So are there any other passages in Scripture that also speak to this issue? And the answer is yes. In Matthew's Gospel, there is a parallel passage to this one. And in Matthew's parallel, Jesus adds an important qualification. Listen to Jesus as Matthew records him, Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. It's a parallel passage. Listen to what the Lord says. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So you heard the qualification in that verse. It's sometimes called the exception clause. In Matthew, Jesus prohibits divorce 
except for instances of sexual immorality. What does that mean? Some scholars hold that the word sexual immorality refers only to sinful sexual activity during the courtship or engagement period of a relationship. So in this view, divorce would only be allowed if one partner was was unfaithful during the engagement. I don't hold to that view because it's too restrictive on the word for sexual immorality. In other New Testament instances, the word for sexual immorality refers to any sexual activity that happens outside of marriage. So, for that reason, trying to put Matthew together with Luke, I hold that Scripture allows for divorce in instances of adultery within the marriage covenant. In such an instance, the spouse who was sinned against is allowed to seek a divorce and also free to remarry in the Lord. If divorce is allowed in God's Word, then remarriage by implication is allowed as well for the spouse who was sinned against. So Matthew 5, I contend, would allow for divorce in instances of unfaithfulness in a marriage. I also take it that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 1 Corinthians chapter 7 may also allow for divorce in instances of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. In such an instance, the believing spouse would be free to remarry in the Lord. But, friends, an in-depth study of 1 Corinthians 7 is beyond our scope this morning. Be happy to talk with you more on that text. For our purposes today, we ought to see this, that when we put Matthew and Luke together, we find that the Lord Jesus prohibits divorce except for instances of sexual immorality, marital unfaithfulness, adultery. Now, there's an important clarification to add at this point. Divorce is not required in instances of adultery. Divorce is not required in instances of of adultery. This is important, brothers and sisters. Remember, God's intention for marriage is lifelong. So even in that painful moment of betrayal, God's heart would be for reconciliation. God's heart is always for reconciliation. And God's church ought to advocate for and pursue and promote reconciliation to the very end. That reconciliation might take a very long time. That reconciliation might require some period of being apart, some time of separation for counseling, for help, for rebuilding of trust. But in the end, this is the heart of God, as evidenced in Jesus' teaching here. God's heart is for marriage as a lifelong covenant commitment. So even in those painful moments of adultery, divorce is not required, certainly not required by God's Word. His heart is always for reconciliation. So we just did a lot of work there. If you're familiar with this issue, then you know that Christians at times disagree with one another quite strongly on how to interpret Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage. Like I said just a moment ago, some people read these texts differently and they maintain that divorce and remarriage are never allowed In Scripture, though there may be separation that lasts for an entire lifetime, 
So in other words, some people interpret Matthew's exception in light of Luke's non-exception. I don't hold that view, but I respect people who do. The view that I'm teaching you this morning, just so you're clear, the view that I'm teaching this morning and the view that I pastor with is that God's people, under His Word, would be allowed divorce and remarriage in instances of adultery and desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Now, we could stop here and we could go through all of the differences in interpretation when it comes to the issue of divorce and remarriage. That would not be an unfruitful exercise. And I'm happy to follow up with any of you on on details on how these texts work together. So we could just camp out here and try to hash out all the differences. But I'd like to do something a little different at this point. What I would like to do right now is pause and make the observation that I contend is more pressing than working through all of the interpretive differences. The observation is this. It's not hard, but I hope that we're clear on it today. The observation is this. Regardless of your view on this particular verse, what should get your attention is how much higher the Bible's standards are than the world's when it comes to divorce and remarriage. That should get your attention today. How much higher the Bible's standards are than the world's when it comes to divorce and remarriage. Whatever your view on Luke 16, all Christians ought to agree that the Bible has no category for no-fault divorce as is practiced in our culture. If you're looking for a jump start to the sexual revolution, look no further than 1970 California when then-Governor Ronald Reagan signed into law the very first instance of no-fault divorce in America. And I understand that it's ironic that Reagan signed it, but he did. The Bible would have no category for a practice like no-fault divorce. The Bible has no category for divorce due to irreconcilable differences. Jesus crushed the grave. There are no irreconcilable differences for Christians. The Bible has no category for divorce because you fell out of love with your spouse. Under no circumstances, under no circumstances, would those worldly approaches to marriage be authorized by Scripture. So whatever your view on Luke 16 and how it relates to Matthew 5, however you take this text, we should all agree that the vast majority of divorces in our culture fall outside the Bible's teaching. And therefore, brothers and sisters, therefore, we ought to embrace that a biblical view of marriage is perhaps the most countercultural witness that the church has in our world today. Where do we have the opportunity to be most clearly the city set on a hill in the way we structure our homes? Where do we have the clearest opportunity to be salt and light in what we believe and promote and support and uphold when it comes to marriage and family? A biblical view of marriage, regardless of your own marital status, 
is likely the most countercultural witness that the church has in the world today. When we devote ourselves to upholding God's standard for marriage, regardless of the cost, we are potentially, under God's providence, opening the door for the gospel in ways that would not have been open to us before. For example, consider the testimony of a tested and tried marriage. We've already noted this morning that every marriage takes place under the shadow of the fall. I probably didn't have to tell you that. You probably know that from experience. So everyone, Christian and non-Christian alike, knows how hard marriage can be. So consider the testimony of a husband and wife who stick together and work things out when the relationship is rocky. That kind of marriage has been tested and tried and proven genuine. When other people see that kind of tested and tried marriage, there's a fragrance of genuineness that by God's grace can open doors for the Gospel. In fact, I would say that more than a marriage that appears pristine and easy, which there are none, More than a marriage that appears pristine and easy, tested and tried marriages become powerful signposts pointing people to the grace of God. Friends, just try to imagine the conversation. We've all had them, whether it's out on the street corner or in the break room at work, where you're just back and forth about the difficulties of one sinner being married to another. And imagine an unbelieving co-worker saying to you, why are you still with her? Why are you still putting up with him? Why have you stuck it out all these years? That doesn't make any sense. It sounds pretty rough. You should split. I got a good attorney. I'll give you his number. And then the Christian says, Well, to be honest, there's a lot of days where I do want to quit. But there's a Savior who sticks around for me. And because of him, I stick around too. Imagine that kind of conversation right then in an everyday conversation about the difficulty of one sinner being married to another sinner. What happens? The door is opened for the Gospel that perhaps might not have been there before. In other words, to be a Gospel-centered church means that we strive and we labor and we fight to never give up on any marriage relationship. To be a Gospel-centered Christian means that you press hard after the health not only of your own marriage, if you are married, but also the marriages of your brothers and sisters. People love to say, give me some practical takeaways in the sermons. Here's one. Don't give up on marriage as an institution. Stick it out with joy. Tested and tried marriages are uniquely beautiful pictures of the Gospel. Let me say that again. Tested and tried marriages are uniquely beautiful pictures of the Gospel. For what do we celebrate in the Gospel? What do we rejoice in in the good news? That Jesus Christ will never leave or forsake His bride. That even when His church is wayward and broken, Christ pursues us like the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one lost sheep. Brothers and sisters, that's the heart of the Lord Jesus. I'll never leave you or forsake you. My favorite verse in the Gospel of John, I will not leave you as orphans. 
I will come to you. How does the world see that Jesus will not leave His church in part, and perhaps largely in part, through Christians who stick it out together when marriage is rough? Tested and tried marriages are uniquely beautiful pictures of the Gospel. And they're uniquely beautiful pictures of the Gospel where love transcends feeling and covenant triumphs over convenience. So, let this be the day, brothers and sisters, let this be the day when we steal our hearts to build our homes and this church on this commitment that we will not give up on marriage. That we will not shy away from our counter-cultural status, but rather embrace it with all joy as a platform for the Gospel. And that we will serve one another through encouragement and admonishment to set our sights on God's design. Lifelong, Christ-exalting, faithful commitments in marriage. That's what Jesus means by the prohibition. I want to close this morning with the Gospel. I hope you heard that application on the last point, and I hope it was encouraging to you. I used the verb steal in the sense of imparting resolve and determination. And I, I pray that God's Word would have that effect on us to steal our hearts for the days ahead. They're going to be difficult. That God would steal our hearts through His Word. As we close, though, I want to return to the Gospel. And here's why. The reality is, all of us have fallen short of God's standard for marriage. All of us. I had to ask forgiveness from my wife this morning. Because I sinned against her. All of us have fallen short of God's standard for marriage. We all have room to grow in grace. Some of us may be keenly aware right now of the ways in which we have not carried out God's commands regarding marriage and family. Husbands, you may not be living with your wife in an understanding way. And therefore, God's Word says that your prayers are hindered. What does that mean? I don't know, but I don't want my prayers to be hindered. You may not be leading your wife as you ought. Wives, you may not be demonstrating a submissive spirit to your husband. Or showing the kind of respect that God calls you to, dis to display. Still others of us may have fallen short of God's standard in terms of commitment. You may have a divorce in your background that you now believe goes against the Scriptures. We've all fallen short. And so I want to close at the end here with what I said at the outset. It's what I aim to say to you every Sunday. The Gospel is our only hope before the living God. The Gospel is our only hope. And what's more, the Gospel is enough for each and every sin. The Gospel is enough for each and every failure that we have to own in this life. The Gospel is enough even for broken marriages and failed commitments. Do you believe that this morning? Wherever you are today, whether you're married or single, whether your marriage is thriving or faltering, whether your past is bright or painful, wherever you are today, the Gospel is enough. 
So simply because we are prone to wander and simply because we are very likely to forget by the time we even hit the parking lot, let me close with just a few precious gospel truths that I want you to take home. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 Whatever your past, there is complete forgiveness for you in Christ. That doesn't make much of sin. It makes much of Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 You are not defined by either your successes nor by your failures. Your identity is in Christ. So live today, wherever you are and wherever you have been, with the full assurance of your standing in the Lord Jesus. I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6 Your future does not rest on all the things you do right. Your future is not derailed by all the things you have done wrong. Your future is secure only by the preserving grace of God. Receive that grace today and strive for that which pleases Him. May God show us grace, brothers and sisters, and may our homes demonstrate the unspeakable beauty of the good news that Christ Jesus loves His bride, the church, and He gave Himself up for her. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us. We need the Gospel far more than we know. Each of us, God, has fallen short of Your glory in ways that we would likely be ashamed of if they were all known or public. So we pray today, Father, for hearts that are resting confidently in the blood of Christ. And we pray, Father, the effect would be that we would steal our hearts right now to commit ourselves to living in our relationships with one another in ways that please You, honor You, and uphold Your Word. We pray specifically, Father, for the marriages represented in our church, the ones that are represented now, and the ones that will be, Father, in the days and years ahead. We pray that they would be beautiful pictures of the Gospel. That You would form and create tested and tried marriages that speak to the unspeakable that Christ will never leave or forsake His church. That He laid down His life for His church. That He shed His blood for His bride. Help us, God. We need Your grace. Help us, Father, to rest content where You have us. Help us, Father, to strive with holy ambition for where we ought to be. We pray for Your help. In Jesus' name, Amen.